My favorite Curb Your Enthusiasm is when he's driving and he's singing, Officer Crump Key, Crump Yo, and the neighborhood <laughs> thinks he's like swearing at kids. He's like, it's from West Side Story. <laughs> play me the um i haven't heard it yet saturday night i woke up to my phone vibrating and i'm like someone's calling me and it was gabe so i put it back down and i went back to sleep <laughs> i mean a 2 30 in the morning call normally i'd be worried if somebody did that but then you left a voicemail and i'm like no she's drunk what if i left a voicemail that was like tasha when you get this call 911 <laughs> oh my god <laughs> You would text me before you would call. That's how I know that it's fine. Because I would have gotten a text that was like, oh my God, I'm in trouble. But instead, I got a voicemail. I'm nervous. Oh my God, Tasha. It's like two in the morning. I'm disgusting. I drank a bunch. We were like, let's go have a drink. Next thing you know, we're doing shots. Things are looky. And then I got home and I barfed which is like a thing that hasn't happened since I was like 18. Anyways, I'm eating a hot dog right now. I love you. <laughs> oh my God, gross. <laughs> oh, maybe it was Friday night that I went out and I was hungover on Saturday. No, because I got this voicemail at 2.30 in the morning on Sunday morning. Anyways. John and I had seen you at the shop because we were going to dinner and we stopped by because you were inflatable arm man like waving from outside the shop when we drove by. Then after that, you went out that night because I was texting you from, from the bar after the restaurant. Oh, I'm right. like, what are you doing? And you're like, I was thinking about maybe going out. Somebody asked me, but I'm in my, I'm in my PJs. And then the <laughs> like, next thing you know, you're calling me mid hot dog post barf. <laughs> okay. You know what we should probably, this is SVU pod, especially heinous. Hey. We actually talk about law and order SVU. I'm Tasha. I'm Gabe. Yeah. I'm all over the place. Anyway, I hated this episode so much. Me too. Um, it was the worst thing that's ever happened in my life, period. And that's <laughs> awesome for me. Yeah. Season one, episode seven. Again, we are following the Amazon Prime timeline because if you like Wikipedia, what episode seven is, it's not this episode. Yeah. It's nor six or five. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. The last one we did and this one, they're wonky. Stocks and Bondage is the name of this episode. Already I'm fucking bored. Yeah. I mean, my like I'm half bored because I'm just like, oh, am I going to get financial information? Also, is it about BDSM? And the answer to that is yes for both. They I feel like uh, this episode, I feel like Stefan from SNL that's like, this episode has everything. <laughs> <laughs> We start off at the crime scene right away. Olivia walks in and they're like, SVU? And she's like, yep. <laughs> we find out that there's a woman. She's hanging. She's heavily pierced, burn scarred. And they say it looked like a suicide. But upon further examination, they decided to call SVU. And the big thing was that her robe was tied around her arms. Somebody had to have tied it after she hanged. It's in this woman's apartment. And her name is Layla Briggs. Mm -hmm. But it was tampered with by the police because the guy said he was like, my initial gut feeling was that it was a suicide and then when I thought otherwise I called you so the right. other cop had to open the robe because they were starting to examine
examine the body thinking yeah. that it was a suicide. And then they're like, wait a minute. And they called SVU because this woman was obviously into some kink shit. Mm -hmm. Throughout the entire episode, they kept being like, all these injuries that she could have done herself or been willingly taking. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like if there were other subject matter going on, they would have veered off into like, hey, let's make sure this was consensual shit that she was into. Mm -hmm. But right away they're like, oh yeah, she was into some shit. We're at the precinct. They're just talking about the case and they're, <laughs> they're I know. saying that <laughs> tattooing is a gateway to wild and crazy BDSM sex. The dark side. Tattoos are just a gateway to the sexual dark side, my friend. That's what Cassidy <laughs> said. My eyes rolled so hard. They started bleeding. This was the um, 90s too. The late 90s too. I just thought that was so weird. It was such an eye roll. And then it was really cringy because um, then Stabler's oh like, God. yeah, I'm so, bleh, you guys think I'm crazy. <laughs> He's got like this tiny forearm. <laughs> What is his tattoo again? Isn't he has it like one on a, his shoulder that's like some kind of weird Jesus-y crucifix thing. There's like a marine yeah. thing or whatever, but he's like, you guys got me. He like outstretched his arm and they were all like, Ew. <laughs> I was like, ew. <laughs> but anyway, so then they talk about the Vic, about Layla, and that she is employed in high finance. She's an investment analyst. So they've just tucked in all of the stocks and bondage premises right in there. Mm -hmm. So Benson and Stabler then go to see Layla's mom, Ann Briggs. She didn't believe Layla was suicidal suicidal they have this very distant relationship and then she tells a story of i was bringing her towels while she was showering when she was in high school and i saw it she had two rings right through her nipples and i just kept my mouth shut because what if i were to say something it would push her away and force her into that even more i remember coming home with my lip pierced when i was 18 mm -hmm. And my mom, I was leaving her house and the car window was down and she was like crouched next to my car, tears streaming down her face oh my God. because she was so disappointed at my choices. Yeah. And I was like, I, I know some fucked up people. I could be so full of fucking heroin. Yeah. Um, I got my lip pierced in yeah. like 2000, like peak lip piercing time. <laughs> Yeah. I got mine when I was 18 as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Munch and Cassidy are at Martin Global. They're talking to this woman named Amy. She's the office manager and she's also the girlfriend of Frank Martin, the guy who owns the company. Yeah. So this is where Layla Briggs worked. Yeah. This was her. She was an investment analyst oh, yeah. for Martin Global. Layla dealt with billions of dollars and she was very well liked because they were trying to figure out like, oh, if she deals with all this money, does she have enemies? She's going on about, she's like, I'm the company owner's girlfriend, Mr. Martin. And it's like, you don't use his first name and you're his girlfriend? She says to Munch, she said, we frown on incoming calls. They interfere with the task at hand because he's trying to get the phone number so that they can get in contact with she wasn't in. this yeah. Frank Martin or with Sholing Fu, who is the head of finance for the company who does like most of the work with Layla. Shouling Fu is her supervisor. Yeah. We frown on incoming calls. They interfere with the task at hand. And Munch goes, we frown on obstruction of justice. I'm going to say it. I like Munch right now. Okay. Well, you can go fuck yourself. This podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs> Table flip. <laughs> I'm going to call it Amy and the owner of the Martin company killed her. That's what I put it in the notes. And in my mind, I was like, Amy was jealous. Mm. Whatever. Yeah. But, oh, I straight up was like, oh, the mom had something to do with this so hard. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, oh. Like she was like, My, no daughter of mine will. So now we're at the Emmy office. She for sure died of asphyxiation. She had lots of sexual trauma, but it looked like it was self-inflicted over the years. The thought maybe it was autoerotic 
asphyxiation, but the robe she was wearing wasn't soiled or had any sweat on it. And when you die, like you shit yourself. Well, and also they were saying, oh, she was like getting into it, getting busy. There's no sweat. There's no anything on the robe. It's like perfectly fresh and clean. What does that tell the coroner? Somebody put it on their postmortem. Yeah. And then she suggests, she's like, sometimes family comes in and cleans it up just so that their family member doesn't look bad. Right. They're back at the mom's house and she totally cops. <laughs> what? I was bringing her a cake. I'm like, <laughs> no. you're bringing her fresh towels. You're bringing her a cake. You are my mom. <laughs> I was just going to stop by and slip it in the kitchen and I was going to get out of there. So she cops. It broke my heart that I even suggested in my mind. So after this part, you were like, it wasn't her. After No, after this part, I'm like, oh, she was bringing her a cake. Yeah, you fucking killed her. You killed her because she you were full of shame about her lifestyle. And then I thought, oh, you and your dad, I'm sure, just bringing her a fucking <laughs> pineapple upside down cake. <laughs> You know who'd like this, Layla? I'm gonna go I'm over gonna, there. I'm just gonna swing by. Oh God! You, do your parents have keys to your house? No, I don't know how. Actually, that's... I shouldn't say they know the code to my garage. If I didn't answer my phone for a week, my mom would be like, "Beep boop, beep beep beep, I'm in." Yeah, but you can like lock the garage door. That's true. Like, yeah, yeah. There, yeah. She has no like physical key that if I were to deadbolt everything, she couldn't yeah. get in. I just pictured my mom taking a lawn chair, <laughs> just throwing it through the window. <laughs> you haven't answered the phone. <laughs> I just think Climbing like in with a cake. If I get, <laughs> if I like shoving it underneath the door, <laughs> just pushing it with her fingers. I just like if I gave my parents a key to the, my, my house and I was like every single time I boned, I would wonder if they had flown in from Florida or like, <laughs> and it was just happened to be the right time and they walk in on me like going hard down on some dude. Yeah, you know. Right. Anyways, I don't need that fear, so no keys. <laughs> yeah, I just can't. Anyways, so mom, denim mom, she cops to finding her. She was bringing her freaking cake. She found her and she's like, I laid on the floor. <laughs> I know. And she didn't know what to do, so she was going to call her priest, oh. but she didn't want her priest to see mm-hmm. her like that. So, And she was wearing some leather kink outfit. She was afraid that if he saw her and all that stuff, she wouldn't get a service. Yeah. A funeral oh. service. That's what she said. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. It just was odd. It was like, that's a lot. Yeah. You know, we're like defending a lady. Like, this, this didn't happen. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> this isn't real. Yeah. <laughs> heart is broken for this actress. <laughs> so she takes off the leather sex stuff, puts it in a bag, and throws it in the dumpster behind the building. I threw that mess right in the <laughs> yeah. trash. They're at the precinct now. They had found the outfit and is laid out on the table. Bodily fluids were all in the, quote, right places, including a male's fluid. They had sent it out for DNA comparisons. So they're starting to think that maybe she was like the mistress and he was like the whipping boy. Mm-hmm. And things got carried away, except for that the whip hadn't been used. There was no skin cells it was like brand new and i'm gonna just jump in and say they called it a whip and actually that was a flog but yeah, keep going it's everybody knows that <laughs> come on <laughs> like if you're gonna get like hey let's dive into the world of bdsm get the fucking terminology right yeah i really love svu you guys i know i'm just it's, like trying. it's just bad it's i had a such a hard episode. i had a, such a hard time with this episode okay okay so the flog's never been used but it rattles and then when they open it it's filled it's filled with fucking diamonds. Like, come on. Are you just, you're just throwing things in now? It's filled with fucking diamonds. Like yeah. half a million dollars of diamonds. Now we're with Munch and his dumb transitions glasses. <laughs> Craig and, um, sends Munch and Cassidy to the fetish stores. The victim frequented and sends Benson and Stabler to the Diamond District. Yeah. And now they're headed to All Due Restraint. I'm 
made note of it too because I loved that name. And the sex shop lady said that Layla has come in before with her boss's girlfriend and they're like, oh, a tall redhead. And she's like, no, brunette. So it was a different person. Cassidy was just an annoying creeper and like talked like this. Was like biting the... his lip and stuff the whole Ew. time. It was weird. Yeah. She it's... also said that she- Don't treat her like that. Just because she's behind the counter at a sex shop, don't get weird and gross on her. She wasn't yeah. being weird and gross on you. She was actually being like, oh my God, we talked about safe um, safe words and, play... and so on. Yeah. Like, <laughs> the way she was a really bad actress. I know. <laughs> she also considered her, what'd you say? Uh, a first timer and shy, yeah. which I thought was weird. Um, because Since she was like covered with years of- Yeah. That seemed like a misplaced part uh, like piece maybe... of dialogue. It feels like this episode was a game of finish the story yeah. where it's like, and then they went to a sex shop. Your turn. And then I'm like, his name was Ben. And <laughs> yeah. And she also said she was a yuppie with a wild streak. Girl, she was fully into this lifestyle and had been for years. It's just there's so many loose ends to this whole thing. Benson and Stabler, they were sent off to the Diamond District. So they go and talk to this diamond dealer and he basically said that only scummy diamond dealers would do business like that. He's like, I'm not going to sell a large quantity or buy a large quantity of anything. I'm not doing that kind of business with anybody that I don't know really well or isn't registered and whatever and da da da. And he's like, I know somebody who would though. McEwen. David McEwen. David McEwen. Yeah. So McEwen was this slick haired little Weasley guy. And he said that she had bought almost $10 million in diamonds with a corporate check signed by Sholing Fu. And if you remember Sholing Fu, is the financial person of the company. Layla's supervisor. Yeah. And then he just kind of like brushes it off by going, hi, finance. I don't understand it. The whole fucking episode is everybody being like, I don't get it. It was kind of like, oh, is she ripping off her employer thing because she's making these big purchases and she's doing whatever. Like they're just trying to find this motive. So they go back to Layla's work and talk to Sholing Fu. Benson and Stabler are giving her the shit. Sholing acts aloof. She's like, you wouldn't remember signing a check for $9 million? She's like, do that like five times a week. Yeah. And she just explains away this huge purchase, but they only found half a million. Olivia goes, where are they? And she keeps like brushing off everything they say. And she's like, how would I know? And Olivia burns her and goes, because you're in charge of finances. Like the simplest answer, so clean, so yeah. chill. Even though both of us hated this episode, I read all this shit after because I'm like, is it just me not understanding shit? Or is it me not following whatever? Or did this episode just suck? Or am I being too hard on Dick Wolf? Uh, I don't know. So You're always pretty hard on Dick. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, it was just so much. Yeah, it's so confusing. Not even just confusing, just like the storyline, like taking hard lefts and rights. But the acting and the relationships that we see throughout this episode of the main cast, chef's kiss. I fucking adore it. Then they ask where Mr. Martin's office is and they go down to talk to him. Did you want me to explain what, uh, the reason why Layla had so many diamonds is because sometimes she was a commodity hedger. Yeah, if you can do that in do a way that's not boring as fuck, yes. Oh, impossible. <laughs> um, but I'll give it a shot. It said commodities hedging. Producers and consumers of commodities use the future markets to protect against adverse price moves. A producer of a commodity is at risk of prices moving lower. Conversely, a consumer of a commodity is at risk of prices moving higher. Therefore, hedging is a process of protecting against financial loss. Yeah. So they're like, oh, we're going to have this pile of diamonds because we have the ability to kind of foreshadow what's going to happen in that market. And it would be 
in our favor to like have this fucking yeah. massive pile of diamonds. Like how people hoard bars of gold for when the apocalypse comes. Right. And they really should be like hoarding like Or like my mom food. buying flats of green beans uh, yeah. before Y2K. Also, Martin does explain that they had so many diamonds because of the Y2K scare thing. They assumed yes. they were thinking that they were gonna be able to sell them higher. Yes, fully Y2K related because this is 1999. Olivia and Elliot are talking to Mr. Martin and he's kind of playing the role of super intelligent computer geniusy guy. Like young go-getter. He's just babbling on about finances, the market, computers, answering their questions as they ask them. You know, he said he knew about her shit, the sex stuff. She kept it out of the office. And then he went on to explain away the diamonds, why they were a legitimate purchase. He kind of randomly throughout said something about the charity that they donate to and that Layla worked with. New vision endowment. Yeah. They give books and glasses to poor children, he says. Yeah. They were asking for financial reports. Mm. Olivia wanted a list. They're thinking that somebody was trying to steal the diamonds. So they're, if it's known in the company that Layla has half a million dollars in diamonds, like yeah. they're trying to figure out who would know that. They learned from the diamond dealer that once these diamonds change hands, it's basically untraceable. Compact, worth a lot, and there's no serial numbers. There's no anything that you can trace them back anywhere, mm -hmm. which was news to these guys. So they're like, okay, an untraceable, huge amount of wealth. We need to get all the names of anyone who possibly knew she was holding these diamonds. So they go to the charity and meet David Kelp. David Kelp. There another <laughs> dude named David in this episode? <laughs> yeah. McEwen or something. Mix it up. They, they go to the charity office to speak to David Kelp. He explained that Layla managed their endowment. She was good at it. Yeah. yeah. She would invest donations to get returns for the charity. And like risky investments, but they always panned out. Yeah. And he's like, I didn't know what she was doing, but she was good. And they're like, why would you use donated money, foundation money in a risky investment? That doesn't make any sense because, you know, you want guarantees or mm -hmm. you want like some really sound investments to be made, not big money return investments with a high risk involved. And he was like, well, the risk wasn't really as it seemed because Frank Martin, the owner of the company, said he'd personally bail out the charity if any investments went south. And they're like, okay. Yeah, he's the power of attorney. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't make sense. It wasn't as clean cut as they were expecting to find. So it kind of raised their radar a little bit. So they go back to talk to Frank. Mr. Martin owns the company. Mr. Martin. He right off the bat was like, Layla would not be stealing from the company. We had a really good working relationship. She could have afforded them on her own a few times over. She made so much money working for his company. Yeah. He's like, I trusted her implicitly. Mom, she can get her own cake. Okay. <laughs> and they were like, was the relationship? Can we get a picture of that lady? And like, okay. Oh my God, I want it framed in like a cross stitch frame. Yeah, we need to get like pictures of all the moms that we were, <laughs> that like... <gasps> And put him on the wall. Yeah. So then they were asking him if the relationship was sexual. And he's like, Oof, no. He didn't know who she was dating. He kind of stayed out of that. HR, blah, 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 blah. Regular boss stuff. They go to Cragen's office. Benson and Stabler, they're going over all the updates with Cragen. Cragen was really, really poo-poo about the whole charity thing. He's like, charity starts at home, people. What did he say? Like He said, for every dollar donated, 90 cents goes into somebody's pocket. Yeah. Yeah. That's bleak, bro. Yeah. <laughs> So now they're back at the New Vision Endowment. Oh, they had found out that less than 1 million of the 18 million they donated was going to charity. To me, it seemed like Martin was laundering money through the charity and Layla was the bag man. Mm -hmm. Like she carried the stuff. All the charity guy had to do was look the other way. And he allowed them to use the charity as a front because him and Layla shared, quote, certain compulsions. Layla had known him in the circuit as the human ashtray. Oh. And he like pulls up a sleeve. Of course, he has a barbed wire tattoo. 
tattoo around his fucking... Just so we all know that he's into sex shit. When um, did Pam Anderson get hers? Probably nine. She was like the queen of it. Like, that's who I remember. Yeah. There's a movie called Barbed Wire that she was in, remember? Oh, that's right. Did I watch it? No. She was supposed to be like a hot leather-wearing assassin. Yep, she sure was. Ass-assin. Get it. You see a bullshit 90s barbed wire tattoo and a ton of scars that look like cigarettes put on his forearm. She knew him and threatened to expose him unless he helped her. Right, and he wanted to keep it secret because the nonprofit world, appearances matter matter a lot. Then he said that there was a woman named Anna Faust and she had a regular gig and she knew the Vic. He was implying that she was part of the quote-unquote circuit. Yeah. It cuts to an interview with Anna Faust. I feel like I like this lady a lot. She mentions that the Vic came to her parties, but she was banished. I don't remember why she was banished. She said that Layla didn't do anything wrong. Layla was was a sub whose master didn't follow Anna's rules, so he wasn't welcome because he had hurt one of Anna's girls. And Mm, that master was Frank Martin. I wasn't surprised. It gave me nothing. I'm like, "Mm -hmm, okay. Anna was like, she promises to give them the name of the girl he hurt if they promise Frank Martin is punished. But she said it in like this. She was like, do you promise to punish him in the way he so deserves? And the stabler was like, um, yeah. (laughs) And she was like, good boy. Yeah, she's She's like, I I can tell you have a tattoo. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... Kragen, for some reason, is interviewing um, this woman, and she's from Vietnam, and she's very nervous about them being from... Ice. 90s ice. Hold on. She was like, are you from immigration? Immigration, is yeah. what she Like, she was very concerned about that because she didn't want to get deported. Kragen's like, I don't give a shit about that. And so she tells Kragen about how she was, like, a paid sub... For m- Anna Faust. For Anna Faust, and Frank wanted to play, quote, air games, which is, like, high-risk sexual stuff, like the erotic asphyxi- asphyxi- asphyxiation. Precinct and a f- <laughs> fuck asphyxiation. There you go. Anyways, she was like, "Fuck no, I'm not doing that." But he called her later to inform her that he knows she's illegal, and if she doesn't play the games, he'll report her. Obviously, nobody, none of the writers knew anything about BDSM or financial stuff. <laughs> Or this was pre Google, by the way. So like they, they probably did libraries. They did so much research to be this ill-informed. <laughs> like <laughs> it took a lot of research to get this little information about the Dewey uh, Decimal System failed them. So anyway, so she's telling Cragen about her experience with Frank Martin, and it was fucking awful. She was like, "I'll do anything to not get deported." And so she met up with him, and he like he choked her with belt. a belt till she passed out, and then she woke up and he was gone. Did she did she get paid for it? I don't know. Well, probably not at this point. So I feel like after they've interviewed five hundred people about how shitty Frank is, they decide, "Hey, we should go back to Martin offices and grab him." Mm-hmm. They go there. It's fucking empty. There's a pile of shredded paper. Yeah. Then they start going on and on about the FBI. I skipped all of that in my notes, but I do want to highlight that I was annoyed with it because I'm like, what do the feds have to do with this? Just another element that they were like, does not explain it. Stacks. Yeah. (laughs) Dirty money deals. (laughs) Remember? Okay. So they're back at the precinct. They can't find him. Jeffries found out that they weren't the only ones looking for him. The Tennessee Department of Commerce and Insurance were all over him and they had sent an auditor. Oh, here we go. Four months ago. So they're at the- This isn't even right because the auditor then says that he'd been there for five months. Yeah. Jesus fucking Christ. Yep. So now they're at the Barbizon Hotel. They're with the auditor. His name is Tucker. His last name is Tucker. Yeah. He's basically Matthew McConaughey in a time to kill yeah um but not even like good though he's first of all that's a good movie 
They're, it's such yeah. a good movie. Yeah. They're in this hotel room and Stabler is standing He's over shaving. his shoulder while the guy is shaving. Yeah. Th I thought that was so weird. He's like, hey guys, yeah, you can talk to me, but I got to get my shave because I got to get going. So let's just, you know, two birds and one stone. Warm, hot towel. I'm just patting my face. Can you hand my me shave. my mint julep? Oh. <laughs> I was good to see you. I'm going to go ahead and put this jacket on. I'm going to put down my collar on my blue button-up shirt with the white collar. He takes a break to talk with SVU because it's just, this, yeah. I just fucking So, up. so yeah, there there were some irregular investments in oil fields that threw up some, like, red flags for mm. the Tennessee thing, and they sent an auditor. And he keeps saying, he's like, he knows Martin's dirty, but he can't seem to find the smoking gun to be able to pin mm. anything on him. And then he's like, I've been here for five months. Yeah. Everything he does is barely legitimate <laughs> just one thing detective if you find him i just want a few minutes with him i've okay. been trying to nail him for five months oh really because i thought you were here for four writers of svu while they're there olivia gets a phone call from munch he just lets her know that McEwen got a call from a woman who wants to sell a huge pile of diamonds i like never thought the guy would actually call yeah because he's like shifty you know but... so they know that martin's involved frank martin owner of the company i feel like i have to keep saying this because all of this is so fucking confusing yeah that he's involved in this diamond deal that they want to do so then <laughs> It cuts to <laughs> Sholing Fu walking into this office. To McEwen's office. Into McEwen's office with a sack, clearly ch -ch -ch full of diamonds. It has right? it has a little um, dollar sign on it. <laughs> <laughs> I am not doing the accent, but it's terrible. It's but it's so great. Munch is playing like a They're undercover, him and Cassidy. Yeah, a Jewish diamond dealer. So Munch is posing as this diamond dealer, but he the way he sells it made me love him. Okay. 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 <laughs> At first, she's kind of like raising her eyebrows. She was like, him. who are you? And he's like, who are you? He's like, are you kidding? Who am I? He's like, I could. And then Cassie's like, he's like, you don't know John DeMunch? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. She's like, who? you're John DeMunch? And I'm like, wait a minute. It's not that, it should have no, been that but, easy. Okay. Yeah. First of all, we have no reference for anybody knowing who John DeMunch is. Obviously, John DeMunch is a play on Munch's actual name. Yeah. So it's not like a thing in the industry where it's like a character yeah. that she's finally meeting for the first I time. I think she just was like, I don't want to be embarrassed. I'm supposed to know who this guy is, apparently. She's walking in with a sack of millions of dollars in diamonds. And she's yeah. like, oh, yeah. For, I mean, yeah, I don't. Totally. I don't want you to think I'm not cool. And she's like, <laughs> what is that? Mike Birbiglia thing where it's like, oh, yeah, have you ever heard of this band? And he's like, I don't know them, but I like but you. I like <laughs> yeah. It was stupid. Anyway, he stepped out. I'm this big time guy. You're going to do the deal with me. Boom. Next thing. They've got Sho Ling in an interrogation room. Where's Frank Martin? She's a dick. She doesn't give a shit. She's, she's like, yeah. She's like giving like half-assed answers. Munch looks through her date book. Bing, bing, bing. So 90s, but also 2019 me because mm -hmm. I have a paper date book. So David Kelp, the charity guy, he's showing up a lot in her date book. So they're like, okay, you hang out with this guy. This is your BF. They're going to go get him. So like, we're going to go talk to him. You stay here. It, it, says, it sounds to me like the charity guy is her boyfriend, but I'm not sure because this episode sucks and I hate it. <laughs> 
we watched this separately. And I, I say that, like, can you believe we both hated it? But this episode was bullshit. I've, I've We're never, so in tune. We both hate this shitty, shitty episode. I've never, I've never liked an episode of SVU less. Benson and Stabler are going to go and pick up David Kelp the, from, but I do need to see. And this is why I loved much this episode. They made him likable because he, he like cuts them off before they leave. And he's like, do you mind if I skip this? I have an appointment with my phrenologist. It's like feng shui for the head. It takes seven months to get in. And I don't want to miss it. And I'm like, oh, get it, Munch. Like, go take care of your mental health. You know, and they were like, yeah, wouldn't want you to miss that. Benson and Stable are two of my favorite people that have ever existed. Don't you give Munch shit. Munch is my jam right now, and I am so easily swayed. It took almost oh nothing. God. It took almost it took nothing to get me there. almost nothing. Ugh. Well, now I have to, like, fucking rethink every decision I've ever made in my life. <laughs> Okay, um, so now they're fucking creeping in to... Yeah, they go to Kelp's office. He's got a bullet in his head. Let's wait, get through this. <laughs> Before... <laughs> yeah, he's dead. They go right back to... The interrogation room. They let Shu Ling Fu that her boyfriend's dead. She fucking starts crying and says he did it. And yeah. she flipped in a second, too. Yeah. Frank Martin. Yeah! <laughs> Oh, and she was, yeah, she was really giving it. She sobs out that Frank threatened her with killing David. Oh, yeah. So that day, he came to her four hours before with a sack full of diamonds, and he yep. told her to cash them out, threatened David, saying, like, I'll kill David if you don't do this job for me. But um, then she's like, I was dancing in a cage when I met Frank. Yeah. <laughs> covered in green paint. Yeah. Like she, and so he, like, yeah, told her he to He liked change. me, even though my name was Angela Torres. It was his idea to change her name because he thought it made her sound exotic. Right. So they're like, tell us where the fuck you were supposed to meet up with him. They bust into the hotel room. And what do they find? The fucking auditor, the Tennessee auditor eating breakfast. In a hotel bathrobe, which Gabe lives in a bathrobe. If she's not wearing a denim vest, she's wearing a bathrobe. Mm -hmm. But I love a hotel bathrobe more than having time alone in a hotel room. I walk in and I open that closet. And if there's not a fucking robe in there. You're calling the desk. I'm somewhere Mandy! else. Or whatever her name is. <laughs> what? I don't know. Whoever is answering the phones. <laughs> yeah, no, that that hotel robe looked so plush. Plush, yeah. Yeah. And he's like sitting there. And you know, I'm always it. watching for that. They find Tucker when they're looking for Frank Martin. And you're like, what? Yeah. Uh, so they bring Tucker in. Uh, turns out he's in cahoots with Frank. So he told him that when he met Frank, that Frank gave him like this new life that he, you know, it introduced him to things he had never had before. And that his life at home was blah, 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 boring. D-U-L-L-D. -L -L yeah. Oh, Frank showed, yeah, he showed him the sexy fun times with women because he's a dork that can't deal with talking to women. Right. And he alluded to Martin pulling him into. He's got cars and money. Yeah. Like he was saying, he, you know, he pulled me into that. Oh, what interesting timing. Because he was there originally to audit him, yeah. but, you know. Because he had audited him before, and that was when he, like, right. said and, he, like, met him. And this was him trying to manipulate his way out of the audits financially yeah. is by, like, playing to his kink predilections or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so it was just just another element. Uh, so then we had, when he had to come back for this new audit five months ago, Frank had promised he could bone Layla. But when he got there, she was dead, and he ran off. And the diamonds were supposed to be hard money tucker tells them that he thinks that frank probably when 
it to the only person that he trusts right now, which is Amy. Who? Who's Amy? Yeah, I don't know. There's I don't remember so Amy. Sh- She's the fucking chick that is the manager of the office. office that was manager. Like, the like the first person that was questioned yeah. by Cassidy and Munch. Yeah, and she's like, oh, I'm the office manager and my boyfriend is Frank Martin. There's his office. Yeah. Forever ago. So then I'm thinking... Oh, maybe my first thing was right that it was Amy and yeah and Frank. Okay, then they go to the apartment of Amy Tanner and she is beat to shit. That was some good makeup, dude. I mean, that was some good shit. Yeah, that was some like post Clubber Lang Rocky Balboa makeup. Yeah, dude. She said that he came to her apartment looking for money and she didn't have any, and he flipped out and like beat her up and found some like airline tickets and he made her call and change them to his name, saying that you know she had to tell him that she was like an invalid and couldn't. Like, right, but yeah. they didn't change them over the phone. She said he made me tell them that I was sending a friend. Oh, that's right. Yeah, to change the ticket. So they're like, okay, now we're gonna go intercept him there. Mm-hmm. This was the most frustrating part of the entire thing mm-hmm. because Benson and Stabler they, they catch like, him at the airport and they're like, need a ride. Yeah. And he's like, would you? Right. And we're like, you guys already met. Yeah. You already met. You already met. You've already asked him a bunch of questions about Layla. Mm-hmm. Right? But that, like, I was so confused at this because they take him back to the precinct. They're trying to like make him feel comfy. They're all like, eating together. The banter is so effing cute. I love the whole thing. If it wasn't such a stupid fucking episode, they're like, ah, yeah, we're not beat cops here, Mr. Martin. You want a cappuccino? Oh, we're more like uh, investigative bean counters. And they're both like yeah. open mouth eating sandwiches the yeah. whole time. And they're like, Real the, laid the whole, back. The whole Layla thing, that's not even in our wheelhouse. We were just, we're yeah. the financial. We just need to look up. We need to just make sure you're approved to use the credit cards. What credit cards? Doesn't matter. We're like, we're just waiting for the computer to, you know, do its thing and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, oh yeah, so there's just a financial aspect of that whole Layla thing. Yeah, weird, right? Yeah, weird. But the whole time I'm going, so is that guy a different guy than the Frank that they talked to? That's what I thought too. That's the same thing. I was like, I was like, I can't tell anymore. No. I remember Googling Frank Martin's face. I I was like, I did that too. I watched the episode again and paused it when they first went to talk to Frank Martin. I paused it on his face. And then I pulled up this actor who played Frank Martin, who they keep calling Frank Martin, Mr. Martin, sitting at the desk with Benson and Stabler. And And I'm like, they're so similar. I'm matching their eyebrows. I'm doing like facial recognition scanning (laughs) between the two images. And I'm like, this is so fucking annoying. If this isn't the same guy, I'm going to lose my mind. But anyway, it was just a misstep in the episode. I think they were so excited. Whoever wrote this shit was so excited about what they were going to do between Benson and Stabler in this cute little back and forth <laughs> that, that they, they were pulling. To, they, they wrote that first and then filled everything in behind. Yeah. And they were like, oh my God, this doesn't make sense. But look how cute they are. Look at them passing back and forth triangles of sandwiches. Like, it's adorable. <laughs> so they keep casually questioning him, trying to get him to Frank's expose like himself. Frank's like a little irritated and like wants to get out. Yeah. And they're like, um, oh, we just got to make sure your platinum card goes through. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But then they keep like making like, oh, well, what was that? When did that happen? Who? What? Why? Oh, we should hire this guy. Oh. You know, yeah. And then he's like, "Um, I'd really like to call my lawyer. Like he was starting to pick up on what they were kind of laying out there. So then Amy, the beat to shit office manager, is in the precinct talking to Craig and Munch and Cassidy. Um, She's like full immunity. Yeah. They're like, cool. Yeah. And she said that she met Martin at a bar (laughs) and her quote of... I didn't mind a little recreational spankies tying I up playful hated stuff. I that both times I heard it. Why did you call it spankies? Yeah. She was like, he never went there with me because 
I got boring pretty quickly, even though some other chick that wasn't into it got forced into whatever. Yeah, None of this made any fucking sense. I thought that she would have been like the perfect target because she wasn't into it because he liked to force women. It didn't make any sense, right? No, okay. None. I rewound that part because I was like, did I hear that wrong? So then she's like, oh, he and Tucker used to like to tie farm girls to trees and sit in the woods laughing, watching them struggle, saying, it's okay. They're only colored girls. So they're like, all right. Now we're going to throw in the fact that Tucker and Martin grew up together, knew each other. From I mean, this Tennessee. is fucking in- insane. Yeah. But they only, both grew up in Tennessee. But Frank doesn't have an accent and Tucker does. Also racism really quick. What are we up to now? We got... Oh, my God. Erotic asphyxiation, diamonds, high finance. Tennessee got involved. Frank got some sort of amnesia because he didn't know who Benson and Stabler were the second time they came around. Now Frank is in a conference room being aggressively questioned by Benson and Stabler because they were like, all right, slow Slam, fist on the desk. That's it. We're done with our lunch. We are <laughs> questioning you heavily. Stabes has his phone records that Frank called Tucker that night, and they're doing this back and forth, trying to get him to admit shit, because yeah. they're like, we have the phone records. You called him at 8.22 yeah. p.m. Olivia gets up in his face. Not a.m., p.m. P.m. Just... And everybody, everybody's turned against you. We need to wrap up this episode Your because we're three at hours. 43 minutes. Like, yeah. let's go. Your lawyer hasn't called back. It's been three hours. He probably checked your fucking financials and you're broke. So then, of course, they're like, push, push, push. And he caves. And he's like, I didn't choke her. Tucker did. <sighs> okay. It had nothing to do with the stolen diamonds. Layla they didn't even know about that till later. Frank was so Frank was like boning her and then Tucker chokes her because yeah. he likes to see how far he can go. Right. So Frank was like, I was doing her, he said. Yeah. And then Tucker was like, hey, what's up? And then he choked her. And then I was like, blah, blah. I could see her eyes were saying no. <sighs> so then it goes to Tucker being questioned. Can we talk about Cassidy throwing that chair though? <laughs> <laughs> that was the best part. He would just sit down and he just like kind of slowly grabs it but then chucks it across the room. <laughs> so Tucker went to sit down and Cassidy chucks the chair. Tucker was in that half seated position already where there's two ways to go where you might just like end up sitting down and hit the floor thinking you're going to hit a chair. Yeah. So Tucker's being questioned about tying up girls in Tennessee. He's like, that was nothing. We were just kids. Yeah. And he was all like creepy drawly about it and... And Tucker goes, oh, it broke the boredom. Ew. Yeah. Well, he's got that voice. So Jeffries fucking throws the door open and she goes, the boredom of sitting on the porch eating watermelons and having babies, you mean? <gasps> and then Tucker goes, you're not a public defender. Sure is hot here in Gallagher's Corners. <laughs> she steps to him and says, she's like an inch and a half from his nose. No, I'm Detective Jeffries. I only came in to see the redneck under the facade of the New South. And then she's like, and gives him a once over. Now I'm kind of sorry I did. And she goes, I'm going rock climbing. (laughs) And she goes, oh, Martin rolled on him. And she's like, and gives this cute little half smile and shuts the door. And he's like, <laughs> and finds out that he's fucked. So he's done. We're done. This episode is done. That's Executive it. That producer Dick it. Wolf. It's the end. Yeah. That's the end of it. Dick Wolf was like, I guess it's already made, so we're going to put it out. I, mean, I don't it's know. It's only episode six. We have nothing else. I can't. Seven, right? Or seven. Yeah. Yeah. Do yeah let's put this episode and all the photos of our ex-boyfriends <laughs> into a tiny trash can and set it on fire. So I decided to choose one element of this story to base my chaser on this week. Sorry in advance to anyone anticipating a 
BDSM, high finance, diamond dealing, charity based money laundering, <laughs> surprise, backwoods, racist childhood <laughs> friend story of murder. I mean, it's, I feel like it's pretty specific. I don't know why you couldn't find anything. Yeah, I did all the different stuff. I searched all kinds of different things. Something came up. So I'm like, BDSM murder. And it's like, oh, here's, this is fucked. So mm-hmm. we might need to hold hands through a few parts cool. of it. So this is the story of Elaine O'Hara and the brutal way in which she died. This is one of the most infamous murders to come out of Ireland. Elaine O'Hara was born on March 17th, 1976. She spent her childhood in Dublin. Elaine was bullied terribly as a child. And as a teen, she was frequently hospitalized for psychiatric care, two of them being overdoses. She also engaged in self-harm. She was diagnosed with depression, borderline personality disorder, asthma, diabetes, and dyslexia. That was just, I know not all of those are connected, but that's just everything that she was dealing with. Yeah. By 2005, a few years after suffering the losses of her mother, Elaine moved out of her family home and was out on her own working as a child care assistant and part-time shop assistant at Robertson News Agent. She was also taking night classes, hoping to become a Montessori teacher. Hmm, good All, for her. Yeah. August 12, 2012, it was discovered that she had gone missing. After a brief investigation, it was assumed that after visiting her mother's grave, she committed suicide by jumping off of a cliff near the area. Hmm. It was speculated that she had been seen and heard crying at the cemetery and her car was found near the presumed jump site. So they just sort of were like, mm, she killed herself. So sad. Moving on. Graham Dwyer was born September 13th, 1972. He moved to Dublin in the early 90s, studied architecture at Dublin Institute of Technology. He and his college sweetheart, Emer McShay of Donegal. Hold on a second. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> you just put your hand up like you just wanted to talk about the names too. Kind of. <laughs> Egan McDonagall well, from... What was it? Okay, Emer McShay of Donegal. Okay, so Emer this Emer McShay of McDonagall. The story's out of Ireland, and as I was researching this, I'm like, Emer from Donegal. I know an Emer from Donegal. I do. No, you don't. <laughs> yes, I do. What? Yes, she's a delight. Yeah, I did want to point out that the name thing might be an issue, and I'm gonna do my best. I just don't want Emer I know listening to this and be like, Ah, Tasha, you can't get it right. <laughs> So say only do the names in an Irish accent. I don't even have an Irish accent. Did you hear how terrible that was? That was pretty good. Oh. I mean. It's always really kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Brad Pitt. You like Degs? So he and his college sweetheart, Emer McShay of Donegal, had a son together. Their relationship ended in 96, and a year later he met his future wife, fellow architecture student, Gemma Healy. By all accounts, Graham was successful, happy, and thriving, but Graham had a dark side. Mm. He had fantasies of not a dominant role in a sub-dom relationship, but of stabbing, bloodletting, and even killing sexual partners. Emer McShay later testified in court that he once revealed to her that he had fantasies of, this is a quote, had fantasies of stabbing a woman during sex and started to bring a kitchen knife into their bedroom pretending to stab her. So that's why she's not with him anymore. Mm-hmm. Elaine O'Hara had fantasized about being dominated in a sub-dom relationship for the better part of her life. As early as 12 years old, she had thought of being tied up and punished. It was that fantasy that led her to a website for people interested in BDSM and meeting other like-minded people. It was on the site that she met Graham Dwyer, username architect72, you fucking dork. (laughs) 
So she met him in 2007. This time was spent with things going on and off. Elaine never felt fulfilled by her relationship with Graham. She wanted attention he refused to give, and he was always pushing the boundaries of consent. I think so. I mean, as far as I know about the BDSM community or like things that I've seen or anything, the sub is actually the one that's in control of the limits. Right. In like a healthy, I feel like there has to be like a lot of trust and communication and stuff like that. Right. But Dwyer never respected that. He would push her into knife play and on multiple occasions would try to convince her to participate in like an assisted suicide of sorts. Mm. He often talked about killing her. There were said to be 2,600 text messages exchanged between them. And most incredibly disturbing was the common theme of Dwyer pushing things to a point that O'Hara would become uncomfortable and ask him to stop. Experts say that Dwyer preyed on O'Hara's mental illness and crippling low self-esteem. So she ended up in a place of fear, but also of not knowing how to stop or get out. Mm. There was a brief period where she got away from him, but then he reached back out to her in 2011 and the relationship continued. It was at this time that he gave her a phone and referred to it as her slave phone. Okay. And it was to be used for their slave and master communication only. And this is when the exchanges became more menacing. So here are a few of the text messages uh, from... Irish no, I know I you're right. You it's so okay, it's... no, it's dark. Yeah, <laughs> I almost did. <laughs> I... Okay, okay, go ahead. My urge to rape, stab, and kill is huge. Yeah, you have... yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm not doing that in an Irish accent. <laughs> yeah, you have to help me control or satisfy it. And she replies, "Control, sir, not satisfy." She called him sir, mm -hmm. as like he called her slave. She called him sir. It's that's a very common title exchange in that kind of relationship. Knowing she struggled with suicidal thoughts, he would encourage her to let him help her. If she ever tried to end it, he would punish her by cutting her during sex. Okay. Oh, here's another text from him. We'll have to find me a victim to stab. That's an order. We will go out for remote walks and strike if conditions are right. I will prepare a hunting bag with things for the murder. I might just snap and stick you anyway against your will. It will all be worth it when I kill you. Winky face. Oh my God. Yeah. She's just like, okay. Her, there was a lot of threading in of her mental health. He preyed on her for a reason because he was looking for someone like her with where she was at mentally and how she felt about life and herself. And I mean, she wasn't, she, she wasn't going to like, well, she would confide leave, in him that really. she, you know, that she wasn't feeling particularly happy or she wanted to, you know, she may have been feeling suicidal and he would jump on that shit. Six weeks prior to her death, Elaine was again hospitalized for psychological issues. She was released the day that she went missing. So she was in the hospital for six weeks. Uh, this is actually an excerpt from the Irish Times that details the final day of text messages exchanged between Dwyer and O'Hara. They had a lot of a lot of the text, so I just have this whole chunk from the paper. On August 21st, Dwyer told O'Hara she would be well bound and gagged, tied to a tree deep in the forest. I have a spot picked out, he said. He had threatened to kill her in the past. It became a theme in their relationship after they reconciled in 2011. He would tell her to find a woman for him to kill, otherwise he would have to stab her. At the outset, he coaxed her back into the relationship by promising not to stab, but inevitably he managed to reintroduce the knife to their sex life. O'Hara tried to be assertive on August 21st. O'Hara told Dwyer he would have to drag her from her apartment. He responded that she would do what she was told and that he wanted outdoor play. I found a really, really remote place. No one will find us, he said. She asked if she had to be naked. He said she did. I don't want blood all over your clothes, he said. She said she was frightened. Trust me, it will be exciting. O'Hara asked if she'd have to drive. A bit, he said. Now I'm really scared, she replied. He told her not to be, to look forward to being reunited with her her master. By 5 p.m. on August 21st, Dwyer had taken delivery of a hunting knife. He had ordered it online to be sent to his office marked private and confidential. 
Is this too bad to hear? This is, I'm like March Simpsoning this. <laughs> he said, I'm heading out to the spot now to double check. He was coming from work when he sent that text and he didn't drive straight home. Instead, he drove up to Killakee Mountain. Killakee, Killaki. That evening, medics regarded O'Hara as cheerful and positive, but one nurse had concerns. Rosetta Callan is in O'Hara's room around 11 p.m. to see that she has settled down for the night. O'Hara confided that she is worried about a man who had a key to her apartment and bothered her. She did not give away the details of their relationship. She had always been careful about who she talked to. She told her father only once that she was in a relationship with a man who tied her up. She dropped hints to the woman she worked with, revealing only partial information and once accidentally showing photographs of bondage gear on her phone. She confided most in a friend who had been a patient in the hospital. She told Edna Lillis that a man was cutting her. Keeping her promise not to tell people who Graham Dwyer was, O'Hara did not give Callan his name. The nurse suggested she contact the Garda. And they keep referring to the Garda, and I I'm, I believe it's the cops. Okay. Amer? <laughs> O'Hara said she wouldn't do that. The man had small children, and she would not like to see them hurt. It was the closest she oh. ever came to telling someone about the trouble she was in. The next morning on August 22nd, O'Hara was ready to go home but still nervous. At 8 a.m., she texted Dwyer to say the hospital was a pain in the ass, but at least she knew she was safe there. I'm just so scared. Did you know, sir? I'm scared of you. You have this hold over me that terrifies me. She asked that he not mention killing for a while until she had settled back to life. He said that was fine, but for tonight's punishment, will be like me pretending to do someone for real, okay? Do somebody for real, like... Like, kill them. Yeah. I won't talk about it, but you have to be punished for not... for having me not talk about it so I'm gonna act like I'm okay yeah it's fucking he sounds architect fucked. 72 yeah sick dork every time I stab and strangle you I want you to think that this is it every time I let you live you owe me your life and are grateful and worship me she agreed now can we stop talking about it? Shortly after noon, O'Hara was released from the hospital. She texted to let Dwyer know and asked for any instructions. Make sure you are fed. Take painkillers at 5 p.m. She worried about the pain afterwards and reminded him that she had things to do on Thursday, that she was committed to the Tall Ships Festival. You will have stab wounds. You know the drill. Last few didn't bleed, but these will. I want you to park at... Oh, fuck. Shangana. Shangana. I want you to park at Shangana Cemetery at 5.30 p.m. Leave I phone at home, just bring slave phone and keys. You will get further instructions. O'Hara asked if they would still do it if it was raining. He said they would and she complained that it would be cold. Shortly before 4 p.m., Dwyer texted her again. He told her it's never as bad as she thinks it's going to be. He added an emoji, a smiley face. At 4.23 p.m., she responded, yes it is, sir. He told her to enjoy being told what to do. She said that's easier said than done. Just empty yourself and become nothing. You are properly a piece of slave meat. Your only job is to serve. Now, that kind of thing, like, I want to cringe at, but I'm also not into BDSM. Mm -hmm. So, like, that could be a statement made by two consenting people. Yeah, but she's but it's she's not very consenting. Clear. Yeah. She, and she's made it very clear that she doesn't want to do it. I feel like she's made it very clear to this guy, except for she'll still take action. Mm -hmm. Like, she's expressed. But then again, like, maybe that's a thing. Where it's like, maybe for some people they say like, part of my thing is acting like I don't want to do it. And like, blah, blah, blah. but they talk, they've already talked about it and they that know they're- That should already be well established. Yeah, and I, this is yeah. just like not. And I'm not right. going to, and I don't want to like shit on BDSM stuff. So if, I know, if I'm being yeah. weird and I don't know stuff, like, I'm sorry. Right. Email me. I don't know. Like, 
I don't. Yeah, I know that's, very that's little, the thing. That's know? why I wanted to point that out because it's like there can be like healthy communicative relationships for like whatever the fuck your kinks are. Like I don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. But this is someone who is continuously saying that they're uncomfortable. Um, she clearly is struggling to be aware of what a a healthy uh, yeah dom sub relationship can look like. At 4.50 p.m., O'Hara asked if she could bring socks and an inhaler and wondered when she'd be back. She also said she hadn't had time to eat. You should be back at car about 8. This guy texts like a fucking Neanderthal, by the way. I can't say Write a full sentence, you know? <laughs> it's, not my, it's not my biggest problem with him, but... <laughs> but it's up there. You should be back at car about 8, he said. More painful getting stabbed on an empty stomach. Suit yourself. At 5.05 p.m., O'Hara left Bellarmine Plaza. That was her apartment complex. She had left her iPhone behind. As she was driving, she got a text from Dwyer telling her to stay on the outer bit on the way in. His phone had used a cell tower at Montrose, so he was en route to Shanaga. Shangana. Shanaga? Shangana. It's probably like Saoirse. It's not... <laughs> At 5.20 p.m., O'Hara was approaching the cemetery. She texted that a lot of the children she worked with lived around here. Two minutes later, she told Dwyer she had arrived. Three minutes later, Dwyer was passing Cornell's Court on the N11. He instructed her to take only her keys and her slave phone and make her way to the park next door. At 5.39 p.m., he told her to cross the railway bridge into the next park near the cliffs. Cross bridge and head to opposite end of park near steps to sea. Dwyer sent his last text from his master phone at 6 p.m. Go down to shore and wait. And there were no further texts from either phone. Dwyer switched his work phone off at 6 p.m. and did not turn it back on until 9.15 p.m. He drove to Quinn's Road close to the shore where O'Hara was waiting. And they traveled together to Killikee Mountain. She had little with her except the clothes on her back, her slave phone, her inhaler, and her keys. He had what he needed, the killing bag, the knives, the sexual paraphernalia of cuffs and gags and masks, leading her deep into the forest. Once there, he did what he had been promising to do since at least 2011. Afterward, he walked back to his car and filled it with the belongings he would dump in the Vartre Reservoir. He left her on the mountain. Now, this was like clean cut. Remember that when they found her car, it was decided that she had killed herself. Yeah, I thought I thought it said that she like jumped off a cliff. Yeah, because they found her car parked by that cemetery. Wait, where so, he said to meet her, and she got in his car with him, and he took her to. Yeah, but he didn't. Did they ever? Did they not find her body? No, because oh. it's a cliff into water. So they just assumed that she. They assumed it, okay. right? They assumed fucking wrong because on December tenth, two thousand thirteen, three anglers. That's fishermen, right? Yeah. Three anglers saw a bag in the water in Vartree Reservoir near Roundwood Wicklow. It's rare that the water in this particular part of the reservoir was less than 15 feet deep. It usually hovered around 20. Normally, a dry year meant a drop in water levels about six feet. The shallowness of this water was extremely unusual. The bag the anglers found was in 12 to 18 inches of water. Hmm. Like, there is no, no normal reason or recorded... If the water's that low? Yeah, yeah. It's bananas. And they saw it. They couldn't figure out what it was at first. Like, so they're like... It's a shit ton of money. They're like, let's let's stick around with this. So they started pulling stuff out one by one. They would, like, cast and catch something and pull it up. They start pulling up these items. Handcuffs, clothing, a ball gag, leg restraints, other types of restraints. Mm-hmm. The men said that they originally thought they had stumbled upon a discarded bag of favors from a stag party. Hey, mm-hmm. Americans, that's a bachelor party. Mm-hmm. But soon they realized that it was some serious gear. Like, it wasn't, like, party handcuffs. Yeah. It was, like, real deal 
fucking well made full, full covered gimp mask and shit. Yeah. They thought it was best to turn it into the police. That sparked a snowball of findings in that area, including more handcuffs, keys, a leather mask, a knife, an inhaler, a chain with a ring on it, a Dune store loyalty card identified as belonging to O'Hara, two cell phones, and prescription glasses with a number on the frame matching records for Elaine O'Hara as well. How soon was she found after he killed her? Well, when they found this stuff, they found all of these things that were connected to her on December 10th, 2013. She was killed August 22nd of 2012. So it was just under a year and a half, like before they had found this stuff. So the guy's probably like thinking he completely got away with it. 100%. Yeah. 100%. But none of that stuff would be any reason for them to... Like, it would raise an eyebrow, but it wouldn't necessarily mean that they need to start some, like, a murder investigation. Yeah. But. Because it could have just been her, like, because she'd gone missing, like, throwing those things in the yeah. water and then killing herself. Right. Dog trainer Magali Vergnet walked her dogs in the foothills of the Dublin Mountains on August 21st, 2013. Now, this is, this is before. What do you mean? August 21st. 2013. Before they found the stuff or before she was murdered? Before they found the stuff. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. It was like he found her dead body before she was murdered? On August 21st. This is a year. This is a year minus one day from her being killed. So this dog trainer, she's walking one of her dogs. I feel like pretty much the anniversary of her being killed. Mm -hmm. She's walking one of her dogs at the foothills of the Dublin Mountains. And her dog brings her a bone. She didn't think anything of it. She thought it was an animal. And this continued, you know, every time she'd go out for a walk, she would, this dog would go find oh bones. Her dog bones. collecting yeah. bones of this woman's body? Um, yes. Over and over again? Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Okay. So. For how long? This went on up until September 13th, 2013. So, like, a few weeks. Um, <laughs> the same dog brought her a bone along with some clothing. So... Then that kind of triggered her to be like, fuck. She's like, I'm going to go take a look. Yeah. She contacted the landowner, Frank Doyle, and they proceeded to discover many other bones, including a human rib cage and a jawbone, as well as sex toys and a set of house keys. They called the cops, and the remains were identified as 36-year-old Elaine O'Hara through dental records. Okay. It didn't take long for the police to piece together the long digital trail and connect O'Hara to Dwyer. So... Graham Dwyer, husband, father, username Architect72, was arrested for the murder of Elaine O'Hara in 2014. So was he married and had kids or was he like... Yeah, he was married. He was was married. married. He had three kids. One of them was from a previous relationship and that girl was like, I'm out of here because this guy keeps trying to stab me. Oh, yes. When we're fucking, you know. His trial began January 22nd, 2015. All of the text messages as well as the hard drive on Dwyer's computer were brought into evidence. The case was almost completely circumstantial but was still quite strong. They had so much shit and he was just dragged during this whole trial. In his closing speech, the prosecutor said that O'Hara was, quote, the perfect victim. He told a woman with the difficulties that she has that he is there to end it. He used her weakness to isolate her. Her ill health was his opportunity to do what he always wanted, mm-hmm. end quote. And to this day, Dwyer maintains his innocence. He's in prison for sure, LOL. right? Yeah. Yes. For how long? Like, is he on death row? Do they even have that? I don't know. It's... Graham Dwyer was sentenced to life in prison, a sentence Justice Tony Hunt said he, quote, richly deserves. hmm Yeah. Dude, fuck that guy. Right. That's crazy. I know. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. I can tell you have a tattoo. <laughs> 
quit it with your eyebrows. <laughs> I feel like um, your eyebrows. The dad from um, <laughs> Shit's Creek. What's his name? Eugene Levy. I feel like you. I felt like Eugene Le- Levy. <laughs> Just kidding. What Just a fool. <laughs> Oh my god, you're like the denim vest never nude. Yeah, it's that's what that is. <laughs> but you'll porky pig it with a denim vest on. <laughs> Ew. Um, okay, so they're they're at all due restraint sex shop. Don't let me go to the bathroom before you leave because I'm gonna do it. <laughs> gonna come out that way. <laughs> Without pants. <laughs> this is one of those mazes, you know, where like you hold it up and there's a little metal ball that rolls through and you have to tip it and tip. Was that like a 90s children's toy? I think it was like a 70s children's <laughs> toy. It's called um, Labyrinth. Have you ever seen Rounders? Yeah. With Oreos? Yeah, guy? yeah. Fucking, oh What's my God. Name? The movie, there was a John movie. Malkovich plays this Russian mobster. And he has the worst accent. <laughs> you haven't heard of John DeMunch? 